Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. Fancy going to the World Cup? Get over. This fellow Ronaldo is a cop. Boom, boom, boom! The foul. Boom, boom, boom! Yellow card. Nah, that's actually bollocks. I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shiny man? <laughs> Thanks very much for taking the time to listen to today's Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Oh, my debit, Ken Early and Kieran Murphy are here. Hey, Owen, how are you? Hello Good there, guys. He may have lost at least some of the dressing room, might not have a relationship with too many people in the boardroom, but Jose Mourinho still has plenty of friends at the stadium if last night's show of support by the Chelsea fans sent to go by. Mourinho seemed touched by it afterwards, I thought, Ken. <laughs> this you, is not normal. Did you think he seemed touched? He uh, appeared... <laughs> yeah. He, he, was, he, he was obviously quite pleased... Um, that that there's uh, people uh, cheering for him. It was the case at Real Madrid as well, though. Remember, there was a lot of uh, Mourinho, Mourinhoistas in the uh, in the crowd who were a vocal presence, particularly among the more hardcore elements of the Real Madrid support. There was a split though, because I was at a Clasico when things started to slip for Mourinho, and there were some boos when his name was read out in the tannoy. And no, no, they were shouting moo. Moo! Uh, for uh, that was what they were uh, saying. I I assume. Ah, oh, right, okay. Wasn't it? I mean, that was his nickname, right? That was his Moo. Moo. Yeah. I totally misunderstood that, totally mis- that moment. Him. Well, they, they may. This is staggering. They They're may all... have been booing him as well, but luckily enough. What about the what, what about the sort of wolf whistling they were doing? Is there, is there a positive interpretation that was, of that? The, our our He's sexy still an manager, man. <laughs> He's got film star looks. Yeah. Uh, waiting for him to to come. What about out the guy who? Whistled, what about the guy whistled. who threw a tomato at him? <laughs> <laughs> uh, in in that culture, that's actually feed. I just want to. Uh, I just want to feed you. <laughs> I just want to get you home and feed you. Yeah, uh, the definitely some of the lads in the Real Madrid crowd, the kind of guys who would have a big tattoos of Vikings and stuff, right? Yeah, those types of guys. They Vikings. Were, yeah, yeah. Vikings. That's the thing. No, seriously, Real Madrid. The kind, the kind of Nordic elements of the Real Madrid support. Um, You're gonna have to the, probably explain this, the, perhaps off air. The Nordic fetishists. Um, those kinds of guys, ta- you know, tattoos, maybe certain, maybe heavy metal, more heavy metal than sort of deep house, let's say. Right. Um, they were loyal to Mourinho to the end, as as those as people of that mentality often are loyal. 
uh, and he's got some true blue loyalists in the crowd uh, at Stamford Bridge too. It doesn't necessarily mean everyone feels that way, but at Stamford Bridge, still the ones who are shouting loudest do feel that way. Richie Sadler's going to talk Jose with us later on in studio, and we're going to hear from Liverpool's Chief Executive Ian Eyre. Can you interview him this week? Yeah, I did. I, I spoke to Ian Eyre at the Web Summit, uh, of which more later on. Uh, he was he was in town to talk about well basically what I was talking to him about was the ways in which um, advances in technology because it is a technological uh, event mm-hmm. uh, have affected uh, the or have changed the running of a football club over the last pretty much his time in the job actually he came into the job well he he started working at Liverpool in two thousand and seven um, as commercial director go out and get sponsors, then uh, was promoted to managing director in 2011 when by the by the new owners, he was he was kept on from the previous from the Hicks and Gillette regime. Uh, and now is the chief executive. Um, so a lot has changed in that kind of time frame. Um, so the things that I wanted to ask him about were uh, obviously technology has massively inc- increased the kind of global profile of clubs, particularly in English football. Um, has resulted in massively increased income uh, for them from TV, from uh, sponsorship, um, and how that maybe affects decisions on things like ticket prices. You know, is it still so important to charge through the nose for tickets when you're suddenly making vast sums, vastly increased sums from TV and from sponsorship? Uh, the question of whether the governance of a club is affected by the fact that you now have millions of fans on social media who telling you what to do or making suggestions making offering offering suggestions mm-hmm. as to what as to the course you could take and then a question like the transfer committee which is uh, which is also an area of football that has been changed by technology I mean the fact that you can track uh, statistics on thousands of players around the world and so on has changed the approach clubs have to signing players particularly at Liverpool where it's been very controversial Ian Air was on the transfer committee so some of those kinds of issues wanted to bring up. Sounds good. Let's firstly get into the report on sport. So there was a brilliant quote from Jurgen Klopp yesterday, which was reported by James Pearce in the, uh, from the Liverpool Echo, among others. Uh, Klopp asked about heavy metal football. Heavy metal football is one of these things Klopp has said in the past. He says, the problem with my life is that I've said too much shit in the past and no one forgets it. So... Klopp uh, may be betraying a hint of irritation. People keep asking him about uh, some little soundbite that he, you know, tossed off uh, three, four years ago and suddenly has come to define his whole life's work. Um, but that is a problem, one I think we've spoken about before. Um, the fact that football managers have to go on the record uh, twice a week uh, and talk all kinds of nonsense, which all then gets frozen in internet amber, ready to be taken, uh, you know, dug back up out of the grave at any uh, at any moment. It used to be that, you know, the world, the words would come out of the mouth and disappear into this big memory hole we call the world. Maybe on they would be floating on the breeze somewhere, but it was very difficult. The breeze isn't searchable. You couldn't find the words easily. The, the words would literally have to hit you in the face like a newspaper on yeah. a very windy day when the when it would form a perfect horseshoe, your head yeah. would be at the forefront of the paper, would wrap around your head, and then you would grab the newspaper, and they'd say, Jürgen Klopp said something about heavy metal. Maybe the next time I, I see him, I should ask him about that. I mean, it, it seems like an act of God, really, in a lot of ways, that this thing has been thro- literally thrown in my face yeah. that I can then ask him about. Yeah. 
but, but unfortunately that, that that wouldn't even happen that often no. it used to happen it used to happen a bit but not so much uh not that often the problem now is that you know a lot of what you say is on the record and you end up saying so much stuff you forget what you said yes i mean i forget what i said two minutes ago well i sometimes do forget whether i've said something on air before or not that right. actually happens quite a lot particularly because we talk to each other quite a lot both on and off air and i'm thinking yeah. i'm saying something to you on air i think this is this is definitely not something I've discussed. Oh, wait, it is. We said it, it last week. No, and definitely. so many of your uh, zany uh, one-liners on. You know, the, the, we, the, the, the listener may not understand, but everything funny that you've said, we've reacted far more uproariously at some stage in the previous two days. And you've <laughs> said... Right, I must make sure to use say that, that again. I better use that. And as a result, me and Ken... Like my, tomato, might... my tomato line from earlier yeah, about the exactly. Red family. I've, I've been practicing that all week. That was Monday office. evening, I believe. Now, uh, so yeah, me, me and Ken, you know, it might seem like, you know, to the listener that me and Ken don't find you funny at all. But that's not... Nothing could be further from the truth. I just, I just want everyone to know that. So, uh, Jose Mourinho, uh, as we mentioned, you, you mentioned on how touched he was uh, by the show of support from the Chelsea fans. I thought to myself... Has he always been this complimentary about Chelsea fans? And I thought, you know what, I, hmm, I, I think I remember. Now I only have my, my, uh, my weak analog human memory to go on here. I'm thinking, I, I think I remember something about Jose Mourinho and those Chelsea fans. But what was it again? Uh, www.google.com, right? <laughs> uh, Jose Mourinho, Chelsea fans. And yes, so it, so indeed it was, Owen, that in the past, Jose Mourinho hasn't always seemed to feel quite as connected to these Chelsea fans as he now does. Um, uh, if you can cast your mind back, Owen, as far as November 1st, 2014, um, Jose Mourinho announced, Everyone knows how much I feel connected to this club and the fans, but at this moment it's difficult for us to play at home because playing here is like playing in an empty stadium. Uh, the team starts playing like it's a quiet, soft game. It's difficult to get that strong start. Uh, I was looking around and it was empty, not in terms of people, because it was obviously full. That's what's frustrating. Uh, January 2015. Oh, no, when we scored, that was when I realised, oh, the stadium is full. Good. So that was, um, that was him in November, uh, uh, last, this time last year, more or less. Then in January 2015, uh, playing against Liverpool in the Carling, or Capital One Cup uh, semi-final, he says, it's a two-leg semi-final, now it's a one-leg semi-final. That says a lot. Two legs is difficult, Anfield is difficult. If Stamford Bridge can give us 25% of the emotion Anfield gives Liverpool, I think we can do it. Oof. Liverpool, instead of 40,000 fans, they'll have five or 10,000. Chelsea, instead of 1,000, will have 40,000. I hope that can make a difference in the atmosphere. Uh, but his best one, the best uh, performance, really, all-around performance, not just quotes out of the game, was in May 2015, when Crystal Palace came to Stamford Bridge, lost 1-0, Chelsea won the league. Um, and all, any, all the journalists could talk about it, a game of such appalling, uh, it was an appallingly boring match. Uh, but all Mourinho seemed concerned with, and all the journalists uh, sitting behind him eventually began to watch him, was, what is going on here? What is going on here with these fans? So, uh, leaving it to the journalists who were actually reporting it, Matt Barlow, of the Daily Mail, Mourinho's touchline activities provided a strange sideshow. At times, he sulked moodily, clearly dissatisfied with the support of the home crowd for his team, while seeming to court the noisy Palace fans in the shed end. <laughs> uh, he ignored those in the Matthew Harding stand when they sang his name, and then seemed to react angrily when they sang Frank Lampard's. Right, Lampard, obviously the traitor who'd, who'd gone off to join Man City. Um, Neil Ashton tweeted, 
Mourinho looks at Palace fans, acknowledges them singing glad all over, turns to Matthew Harding, that's the Matthew Harding said, shakes head at Rui Faria, nothing. Uh, Crystal Palace's social reporter Samuel Jordan reported, Mourinho points at the Crystal Palace fans, puts his thumbs up and mouths, top fans, before gesturing at the Chelsea fans behind him and miming sleeping. <laughs> uh, so, so when he said not normal last night, we know what he actually means. It certainly wasn't normal for Chelsea yeah. fans to, to uh, support their manager in such a way. But it, I mean, Mourinho... To make any noise of any kind, whether it's in support <laughs> of or against Jose Mourinho. Things have, things have changed, let's just say. Things have changed. And now Jose Mourinho is a little bit more grateful. He's not being quite as tough. It's not tough love. It's more just the conventional kind of soppy love uh, that he's uh, showing towards these Chelsea fans. But look, this is a problem created by the internet, Owen. Mm-hmm. You know, if it wasn't for all that being there... Searchably, uh, we'd have been talking about something else by now. The only bit of consolation for Jose is that Arsene Wenger specialised in his speciality again. Failure last night. Yeah, well, 5-1 is, is Arsenal's record defeat in Europe. Uh, we were not at the races, was Arsene Wenger's analysis. Uh, I mean, uh, I thought, that I was watching this game, obviously arsenal Bayern seemed to me to be the most interesting game, but I did turn it off at 2-0 because I thought, well, I see which way this one's going to go, um, and and switched over to watch Chelsea, which was, you know, at least the more evenly balanced contest. Well, another great thing about the internet these days, Ken, is you can watch two games at once. I was watching Chelsea, and I was streaming, <sighs> streaming Arsenal. I hope you were doing it. Um, yeah, or team, or team player. Oh, or team player. I'm pretty sure those guys. I'm pretty sure those guys have all. Have all the, nicely the handled. handled yeah. I mean, nicely explained. Yeah. I should say nicely explained. That's that's. Probably watching two games at once is you can't you remember can't what happened in either of them. Either yeah. game, yeah. <laughs> I, I remember. Did Robin score a goal? I don't. I don't know what happened. Um, yeah. Look, it's uh, Robin did score a goal actually on a very nice goal. It was too. Uh, knocked it into the roof of the net from the near post. Oh yeah, nice chip finish. Um, I was. I mean, I watched the. Uh, you know, some of the highlights and whatnot. Uh, I saw that we're going to have Richie Sadler in shortly. He was a member of the URT panel, which also included Michael O'Neill and Eamon Dunphy. Uh, um, Dunphy was suggesting that it was silly to think that Arsenal could win the Premier League. Basically, on the basis, essentially, that no team, no champion team, no potential champion team is going to go and get butchered in the way that Arsenal just have there. It's It's just not something that a team that had a real kind of steeliness at its heart would allow to happen to themselves. I'm not sure about that, actually, because, I mean, if I think if Bayern Munich were in the Premier League, then I'd be pretty pretty dismissive of Arsenal's chances of winning that competition. <laughs> but they're not in the Premier League. Bayern Munich are in a different league. They happen to be in the same league as Arsenal, you know, last night, but not for very long, it looks like, because Arsenal now need... I mean, Arsenal could still go through. They need to win their two matches. But I think they can be fairly confident that Olympiacos will lose to, to Bayern. You know, Olympiacos in Munich. I wouldn't say they're going to get a point out of that game. If they do, then Arsenal are out. But, you know, there's, there's still a reasonable chance if they win their two matches that they're going to go through. But, you know, in terms of the Premier League, um, the didn't, fact that they didn't could Manio, lose... Yeah, didn't Man United lose 5-0 to Newcastle and then 6-2 to Southampton in successive weekends? 6-3, I think it was. 6-3, I think, yeah. Um, um, and win the league that year. Uh, they, Neither they of did. those teams were... Uh, 
of Bayern Munich standards. No, I mean, it, it, it sometimes happens. I mean, our, our, still, our team that has been playing well only a couple of weeks ago beat Bayern 2-0. Um, so they shouldn't have... Uh, I mean, 5-1 is embarrassing. You know, I think that was Eamon Dunphy's point. You can't... You know, a real a real set of winners. If you've got a real set of winners in that field, they're just not going to let that happen to them. Even if they're outclassed by a team like Bayern, they're just not going to let themselves lose 5-1. And I think there is... Yeah, there's... I can kind of see the point, but... I just don't think the Premier League contains any teams that are as good as Bayern Munich at the yeah. moment. I think it's quite feasible that Arsenal could actually go and... and it's it's uh, just whether or not that does any damage to them mentally. And, that, that's the, that's, and they, they have yeah. shown themselves to be a team that has struggled. Oftentimes, they're motoring along all right, they get a bad result or a bad result or two, and they haven't reacted. And that was the great thing about those United teams that you mentioned, Murph, was that they uh, always reacted well after those little mini slumps or those little one-off bad disastrous performances. There was also uh, Manchester United playing against um, uh, CSK Moscow and they managed to win 1-0, finally ending this very long goal. Wayne Rooney scored the goal, uh, a nice volley across to him by Lingard and he's there in the right place to head it in and big celebration from Wayne Rooney. He obviously has been, he's aware that people have some some people have been muttering some things about you know it's been a while since he last scored and so on, but he managed to score, um, uh, and that was a big moment maybe in their season. Um, Roy Keane on ITV. I'm, I'm it's it's upsetting that I can't watch any of this. Uh, on the way that my TV is structured means I don't have access to this. No, I'm the same. ITV's uh, Man, many of us are the same. But I did get to watch him online having a big go at Ashley Young. I thought to myself, this is ridiculous. He's having a massive go at Ashley Young. So basically, he said, if Ashley Young is a Man United player, I'm a Chinaman. He's a disgrace. Look at the dive. It's a disgrace. It's a, it mentioned the word disgrace many times. Kind of got even angrier when he was pushed on it. He's a disgrace. Look at the triple somersault. He goes, doesn't do a triple somersault, actually. Jumps up in the air a bit in the in the manner we've seen actually. I thought to myself, why is it, why is Roy Keane hamming it up so much on this point? You know what I mean? It's Ashley Young does like a dive, and he, we've seen that before. Uh, it's something that uh, I mean, I remember him getting a very important penalty on one of the transfer uh, one transfer one of the season run-ins, the the title run-ins. Title that's the word I was going for. Uh, got a, got an important penalty. I can't remember if it was 2012, if Man United ended up winning the league that year. But, um, you know, I just thought he was... Does he not just do this, though, Roy, from time to time? Roy. Come on. Roy Keane dived him. Roy Keane got sent off for diving against Blackburn Rovers in a... in a one of the... Uh, at the time when Blackburn was the chief title rival. You know what I mean? I saw Paul Howard tweeting about the his dive for Ireland against Andorra. Actually, at the time, I thought it was a penalty. But uh, <laughs> there was no replay on this video that I watched today. I thought, well, maybe he did dive. It was one of those where you're chasing a ball that's going towards the end line. The goalkeeper comes out, sort of dives into the general area of the ball. You you go down. Kane, I must say, he didn't put in any somersaults. He didn't turn around to the referee and, and appeal. He knew that the penalty had been given. He didn't want to look at anyone for a bit. He just dealt with, you know, his, his conscience himself. But, you know, all I'm saying is people do this. You know, don't don't react. He, he was going on so Ashley Young's disgrace shouldn't be playing for Man United. I don't know. I mean, I saw Paul Scholes was also criticising Young 
I can't actually think of Skulls diving too many times now that I think, now that I think of it. Was there a famous Skulls diving incident, like the Keen one against Blackburn, where he was disgracefully sent off? I mean, who, who had ever seen a player sent off for diving, by the way, before Roy Keane got sent off for diving that time? Can, can you remember one? It was like 94, 95. Who, who had ever been sent off for diving in the history of football before, before that point? Keane may have been the first. He's the first in my memory anyway. It, it will always be associated with Keane to an extent. They call it, you know, if you have particularly egregious dive, it's known as doing a Keane. Doing a Keane. In, in football circles. When you get sent off in a, yeah. in a massive game against the title rival. For diving. For diving. That's Disgracefully. Doing, that's, that's doing, doing, doing a Roy Keane. Where it's just getting booked for diving, but it's your first booking. That's doing an Ashley Young. One more quick story. I just, uh, I just want to mention that the, just on Ashley Young, oh, yeah. there was the question of, um, you heard Darren Fletcher talking about how this used to be sorted out. Darren Fletcher was talking to Graham Hunter about, um, I don't know if he meant particularly diving, but if it was, if say Keane and Skulls both felt strongly about misbehaviour as a Manchester United player in the times when they were both there, um, Keane apparently was the kind who might say it to you. He might say something to you, sometimes in private, sometimes in front of everybody. But you know, you'd, you'd know how you felt about it <laughs> that way. Skulls wouldn't say anything. He would just kick you around in the training. This is apparently what used to happen. Skulls would just target you for bad fouls in training. He wouldn't say anything. You'd just know that he was unhappy about something. This would be the way that he would let you know. Maybe there's nobody doing that. <laughs> that sounds like something you'd do at the, you know, if you were in the zoo. Like if you're, if you're being kept in the zoo. As a, like yeah, as a display. Yeah, like the, basically the, 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 Dominant the zookeeper would, would tell you about this. What's going on here now is that Skulls is angry with Fletcher, the, the monkey, and as a result, he's throwing his own feces. Beating him and, and brutalizing yeah. him. I don't know if you've have you heard Graham's latest interview. With Graham Sunas? Yeah. In fact, Owen, I have. I've been, I'm listening to it right now. Well, I'm not listening to it right now. I've taken the earphones out as I record this, our own podcast again. Yeah. But I really like the story. It's a re- really good interview. Uh, I love the story after Liverpool have won the F- at the European Cup in Paris. In Paris? Oh, yeah. They played in Parc de Prince. Who did they play that time? Real Madrid. Madrid. So they've won the game. He himself and Phil Neal, one of the other players, have to get drug tested. So they go and they give their samples and come back half an hour, an hour later to find the bus is gone. Apparently this is just the way it was done back then. I mean, if you're not, if you're too late for the bus, it doesn't matter what your excuse is, you can find your own way back into our hotel. So they're wandering around Paris trying to find a taxi when the riot police roll up beside them and come out with truncheons raised thinking some hooligan Liverpool fans here better get ready to give these guys a good thrashing. And soon it's like, no, 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 football, football, you know, doing this kicking motion. Eventually he takes his medal out. <laughs> I, I played I play in, the, in the game, you know. And they're like, oh, right, okay. So eventually they drop them back in the in the back of the van. Yeah. Different times, Ken. Different times. I mean, he talks about that the 84 final as well and the sort of, uh, I mean, he claims, I'm pretty sure he claims, I've only listened to it once, and I thought, did he really just say that? That Joe Fagan, the Liverpool manager, uh, had had left the TV on in his room really loud or something like this. Him and so soon as and Kenny Dog Leach couldn't sleep for ages. Yeah. And eventually it, they realised it was Joe Fagan's room and he's oh sorry lads you know tough night opened a second bottle of scotch. Yeah. I thought, did, he, did you hear that? Yeah did I, I got the impression he did that, say that. I got the impression Joe Fagan was in, was in with the rest of the coaching team though. I don't know if oh, he was course. doing two bottles of scotch it to himself. It wasn't two bottles. <laughs> but you know I mean come on guys you know obviously no absolutely no preparation of any kind 
Like uh, that was that was the thing that kind well, of pick the team to, and yeah. celebrate by by pick the same team that has gotten you that has played nearly ninety percent of your games. But the, say we're not going to change it now. They can't be as good as us. Yeah, that, jo- was, that was that was pretty jo- much what he Joe said. Fagan ruminating to himself in front of the players. Roma, won, won the good league. side, won the league, got um, to the won, final. won their own cup. There must got be to, good. Must be good. Can't be as good as us, boys. The utter scorn of the Liverpool boot room for tactics. <laughs> you know the way. You know when John Giles says, "There's no great tactic in the sky." Owen, he used to say that to you, right? Yeah. Uh, There's no great tactic in the sky. But I mean. Sudas was saying, Bob Paisley would say, I'd love if someone could explain to me what, it, what they mean when they say leading the line or some other football, you know, <laughs> phrase. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a concept. <laughs> I, could, I could explain that to you. You got a big lad. He's up there. And uh, when, you, when you pass the ball quite long towards him, he's the guy who's expected to get up there and, you know, make himself a target, right, for that. I mean, it's not that... Crazy, it's not that complicated, is it? It's not that pretentious an idea. Soonest was because sneering at the idea of people who say false nine and sort of. Do you stuff. think the Liverpool boot room at some point, maybe in the nineteen nineties, were overtaken by <laughs> modern trends? <laughs> what is this terminology all about? Anyway, at some point, yeah. We wrap this report on sport up. Yeah, I was going to say another story, but we got sidetracked. Stick a fork in it. Yeah. Okay, stick a fork in it. The training pitch is all scrapes. Somebody's got to somebody's got to hold a hand up and say it's like training on a car path. No, 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 no regrets about it. No. As you ask me a question, I'm going to give you an answer. Who, John Delaney? He could have phoned me. Of course, he could have. Try my hotel room. <laughs> yeah, you can laugh. I was the World Cup. As an ex-player and as an Irishman, and I mean an Irishman, uh, born and reared here, then I, I felt I was entitled to give my opinion. Swinging in the backyard, pull up in your fast car, whistling my name. Which phone is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Open up a beer and you say get over here and play a video game. Why would you turn it off? I see you. Put on silence. Just gonna let it ring. Alright, it's good manners. Play a video game. If that was my team, I'd go into the dressing room and I wouldn't even mention the handball. I'd just say, why didn't someone put their head in it? France would definitely take it and Ireland never grabbed it. Usual. Usual stuff. Afraid of that next step. Mentally not strong enough. But they can complain all they want and all these players, they can complain all they want. It's not going to change. France are going to the World Cup. Get over it. All right, Richie Sadler has popped into the studio. Richie, how are you? Oh, you well. Yeah, very well indeed. Uh, we want to talk Jose Mourinho, if that's all right with you. Go he said it. the support that he got last night from the ground. There was a lot of great footage of him taking the acclaim of the supporters and sort of banging his chest as if to say, yeah, yeah, we're all Chelsea here. Uh, and he said afterwards that this level of personal support, it's not normal, is what he kept saying. This is not normal. This is incredible what these guys give me. Is it important that on top of everything else, the fans haven't turned against him, that the fans are still actually want him there? Ultimately, I don't think it'll make a blind bit of difference to Abramovich's decision. I don't think he is an owner that's going to take on board the views of of, of the people who watch the games. Um, Marino was right to do what he did. I think he's trying to emphasise the fact that he still has support Mm. and trying to stress the importance and the value of that support because it doesn't seem to be 
that he has support anywhere else. Yeah. The, the, what we hear from the dressing room, what we assume is happening upstairs in the club, um, the media, his interactions with the journalists, TV pundits, everyone seems to be pointing out um, the obvious flaws in his behaviour and his thinking and his comments and how damaging and destabilising he is at Chelsea. So if I was him, I'd do the same thing. I'd, I'd harp on and really stress the fact that there are some people in one corner of this whole thing which are really supportive. I know you say it won't influence Abramovich's decision-making. But if it was the other way, if these games, all these defeats that they've had this season were being played out to a background of... We've seen it with lots of managers where it's, Rafa, it just gets... Rafa, it just Rafa gets, was winning and the fans were booing him. And it just gets so toxic by the end that even looking at these games on TV, you think, well, that manager just can't... Say, this atmosphere can't continue. Whereas at least as it is at the moment, <laughs> the football is awful, but the atmosphere, the atmosphere in the ground isn't too bad. Yeah, the atmosphere in the ground. Isn't Maybe Ramsey isn't as worried about atmosphere as I'm yeah, making yeah. I, I, I'm, <laughs> these I'd, abstract concepts. I'd wonder whether he cares a jot about that kind of thing. If you look back at his previous decisions and 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 and, and sackings, I don't think he's someone who, who's going to take on board the, the supporters at all. Um, when you're talking about atmosphere, I think he's probably more aware of the atmosphere in the dressing room and in the training ground and within the club, and in the atmosphere when Marina walks into the boardroom, for example, or when Marina walks into meetings when he is there. I think that atmosphere is probably more relevant than how happy the fans are in the stand or how grateful they are for all the things Marino's done for the club in the past. It's his current behaviour which is the concern at the moment, so I think that'll be the thing that'll be his downfall. Why do you think he has such support from these uh, fans? Because you know he's lost a lot of games, a lot of things have clearly gone wrong, and you have at least a, a very loud section of the crowd uh, who continue to, to re-support him. I mean, are these people right that uh, Jose Mourinho is the man, that really he's the only way is Jose. That's it. Well, that's, you know, that's kind of what they're saying. Yeah, I think they have a couple of flags saying exactly that phrase. Um, you know, can they see something that everyone else um, is, has somehow been blinded to? I think it's a, there's a degree of loyalty in it as well. And, and because of all the good times he's brought to the club, like he's clearly an outstanding manager. You, you can't question that. You can question his methods at times recently. They've been barmy. But what he's done for the club warrants a certain amount of loyalty from the fans. And we were only talking about a relatively short period of time. How many games into the season are we? 11 in the league. 11. Yep. And only a few months ago, like they're the reigning champions. Like they, they lifted the Premier League title in May. So we're not talking about a really prolonged period of awfulness. So I, I, I think the fans would probably be wrong. And it would, it would look awful on the fans if they were to turn on him 11 games in to a season. But I think... I don't think ultimately that will be enough to save him. And I don't think it should save him because the, 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 the way in which he's carrying on, like I've heard your podcast recently, you look at his interviews, his treatment of the players, like it's, he seems to be having some kind of a meltdown. I don't know what's going on in his life outside of the club, but he clearly looks like a trouble fella who's bringing nothing but kind of disruption to Chelsea. Well, when you see him doing those interviews, the thing that really strikes me about him is how unbelievably unhappy he looks. You know what I mean? You've seen his face. Why, yeah. why is he so depressed? I mean, that's what kind of strikes me when I see, rather than anything he says or doesn't say, or, or rather than thinking about the content of what he's saying, it's just his... Uh, <laughs> well, he's in the biggest, I suppose, he's in the biggest professional crisis of his career. And this is a guy who clearly defines a lot of gets a lot of his value in life out of work. I'm sure he's a good family man, all those kind of things. It's but kind of he, chicken he, he, egg thing, though. It's like, it's, is, do, does the professional crisis have something to do with the kind of apparent collapse in his morale or his, the, the vast change in the way, in his, in his mm. demeanour and behaviour as he goes around? Or has, has the, 
has the defeats have the defeats caused? I know because it, it did start quite early in the season. Before like, now they're in full on crisis, but from very early on he was in full paranoia mode, full refs are out to get us mode. Uh, and he, I suppose he did look pretty miserable from the very start of the season. Way more than normal. Like he's always had a fairly confrontational style, and that's that's what he does. But but you're right. I think even even before the start of the season, there was a kind of a greyness about him. There was a, a lack of energy or lack of life or something. And um, the paranoia stuff has reached new levels. Like that's always been there somewhere. He, he he seems to have this kind of persecution complex anyway. But. Um, that's reached new heights or depths. I don't know how you describe it, but it, it's he's just a troublesome presence now. If you were, like, I think Ken, I saw your tweet last night about the the, the over the top sarcastic laughter, like oh, how yeah. annoying that's starting to look. Mm. If again, I always kind of think if I was in that dressing room or on that pitch, or even if I was a sub next to Marino on the bench, and something's going wrong for the team on the pitch, and the the main man, your manager, all he's doing is clearly like it's clearly for the benefit of cameras and the, the watching public. He, he's spending a good no four, eight, ten seconds with this forced put on laughter. Yeah. Just think, hang on, you're you're the boss here. Like you're you're like we're in the shit. Yeah. Like pay less attention to developing your image or trying to 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 stick to this narrative that the world is against us and and manage us, lead us, inspire us, do something. Yeah. Stop laughing. This isn't funny. <laughs> Even in the Liverpool game at the weekend when. Klopp got a bit of stick from one of Mourinho's backroom team for going crazy after whatever tackle it was that he felt should have been a, a yellow or red card. And Mourinho afterwards said, well, tried not to say, but essentially said, look, if that was me, what do you think would have happened if I was acting the way Klopp was acting? But only a few minutes after that Klopp incident, Mourinho, when they finally did get a decision from the referee, gave the sarcastic applause and did it for repeatedly. He came out of his his dugout, went back down, got up again and was doing all this sarcastic applause. So it's as, it's as, he, he clearly does have this thing in his head that everyone in English football is out to get him. And I don't know if there's any truth to that or if that's just totally a figment of his imagination. But so much of his energy is used up in that area, like the, the applauding sarcastically, laughing sarcastically, complaining, so much of his interviews is, is is focusing on this spiel time and time again. He's a new target each week. He's several targets, but but it's none of it is really focused on the thing that he should be doing differently or the thing that the team could be doing better. He's just you know the world is out to get us. What's little old us going to do? We we don't have this. What was the phrase of the day? We, we don't come to the fight with the same ammunition as other people. Mm. Like, come on, take responsibility. I suppose he's at this stage. If if he says anything about the players, it's going to be negative, and you're going to be veering into the territory which he has veered into, and that is criticizing individual players. Mm-hmm. Although I suppose Alex Ferguson had bad seasons and managed to get through post-match interviews without landing all his players in it. Yeah, I mean, everyone, you don't have to do it. I mean, you can you can criticize them collectively or say we weren't good enough, but like to say, oh, Matic has completely lost, you know, all sense of <laughs> this what it means Hazard to a guy. What's player. he up to these days? You know, yeah. Hazard has caused us to yeah. in loads of goals. You know. He's he's done this, and he's and he also dropped John Terry. Remember, like that was quite a public oh, yeah. sort of. Uh, I mean, uh, speaking of John Terry, actually, uh, actually we'll get we'll get to him. But there, there, there was this uh, there was this quote uh, attributed, or Gary Richardson, the BBC um, radio journalist, had uh, claimed to have heard from a good source mm. that a Chelsea player said, "I'd rather lose for him than win, lose for Jose Mourinho than win." Uh, and I know that since that. Out. A lot of people have been saying, well, it's just not that way in professional football. Professional footballers don't think like that. They wouldn't lose a game, do they, really, or maybe not play at full throttle just because 
they wouldn't mind their manager getting sacked. I mean, what's your view? Is that a is that a plausible quote? Do you, do you believe somebody could have said that? Well, first of all, uh, rubbish the notion that that an attitude like that couldn't possibly exist in the profession of football. That 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 a footballer would in in some way think that way. That because it's not true. Pe- people would think that way. In in simple terms, what that quote is referring to is somebody in the dressing room who prefer Marina to be sacked and knows that one or two defeats will achieve it. That's pretty straightforward. Loads of players throughout the history of football have been in a dressing where they go, Do you know what, I can't wait till this fella's sacked. And he's about to be sacked. So the, the, I wouldn't be read too much into that. Whether someone actually said it or who said it, um, I don't know. It'd be interesting to know how it got to that journalist. But um, it, it happens. Of course it happens. Like if you're sitting here thinking that every player, and you can think of all the disputes players have with managers, all the difficulties they have with their clubs, that they would sit there and think, no, I want this manager to succeed in all circumstances. That just doesn't happen. It's funny, most of the commentary I've seen around this is quite black and white. There's that player that supposedly wants to lose instead of winning. I've seen other suggestions that he's still got the support of three or four players or four or five players, but that's it. And I always think, well, surely not every player is totally definitive. There's got to be a few guys out there who are who have had good times under this manager but are starting to doubt him. And they're not, they, they don't necessarily want him to be sacked, but they're not sure if they want him to continue. Yeah, exactly. What, what, what even, and, and how do you take a poll like that? How, yeah. how do you take, we, we know four or five players are in support of him. What, what, and what are you defining, like you said, what do you define in support by? There must be players in that dressing room who are just so weary of Marino and just are tired of his antics. Other ones will be personally offended or insulted by the things that he said about him in public. Other ones will be annoyed that they're no longer in the team in the way they used to be. Um, and I assume it's an incredibly unhappy and tense and miserable place to be at the moment, Chelsea. It is should any, be. Is given. there any way to sort that out? Bring the lads out for a bonding session as the <laughs> euphemism goes in <laughs> English football? You mean take them out to the pub for the day? Yeah. <laughs> I've heard worse ideas. I, God, I would hope that... that, that it, it, Some of them are like, we don't even drink. It doesn't matter. You're drinking today. <laughs> drinking today, son. <laughs> <laughs> it's what we do. Yeah. Um, there was this big show of support for uh, Jesse Maria from John Terry. I don't really know what option he had in a sense. Exactly. It's not like he's going to come out and exactly you know equivocate about. It. But he he did uh, he did uh, offer offer Jose some support and say he was the man. But he also said uh, he had some things to say about the the own uh, the problems he's had with people coming out of the woodwork and having a go at him. Uh, and I guess we can listen to what he had to say here. We are where we are as a group. I've I've come under criticism individually from from certain players, individuals. You know, players who, who I'd, or I've looked up to, played alongside, you know, and, and take it on the chin 100%. You know, the likes of Rio, Cara, Neville, we're talking at the very best that, that I've seen and come across in the game. I sit there and listen and, and take everything in and try and, and try and improve that. I don't look at that in a negative way. When certain other people speak, yeah, maybe not. Maybe I don't listen. Maybe I don't take it on the chin when players have not had a career, have, have played at a really bad level throughout their career and, and come for people that have achieved what I've achieved in the game. Um, you know, Robbie Savage being one. <laughs> it's, you know, he's dug me out a couple of times and it's, listen, as a footballer, an individual, you, you take it. And as I said, I'll take it all day long from the very best, the Rios, the Carragers, the Nevilles. All day long I'll take it. Other people, no. Well... Well, uh, I don't know what you, what you think of that, um, Richie. You reckon uh, that's a good way to look at things, John Terry's view? It doesn't matter what they're saying. What matters is who's saying it. 
Yeah, it, it, it's a common enough thing in football, common enough attitude that you have to earn the right to give an opinion on certain topics and you have to earn the right to discuss certain competitions or certain players and you only do that by achieving great things as a player. It's, I mean, it's, it's, I was interested in what he said, like he's distinguishing the people who say the things that are being said rather than taking on board is, what being, is what's being said warranted. Mm. Now, he, he said it, I'll take it on the chin, I take everything in and I try and improve the situation when certain criticisms come from any name, the Rio and Carragher or whoever. If the exact same phrases come from any named Robbie, it's like, is that to be ignored? Do, do those words no longer carry any truth? Do you not have to take that in and try and improve it, even if it's the exact same sentences? I had the exact same thought going through my head when I first started becoming a pundit. I, the, my, my first gigs were with Satanta TV in 2003, and, and each Saturday I would fly up to Glasgow and be on a panel with usually Ronnie Whelan, mm. sometimes Cascarino. I hadn't kicked the ball in the Premiership. And I've been playing 15 minutes of a crappy friendly. So I'm <laughs> sitting there and it was the time when Robin and Duff were playing for Chelsea. They were, you know, they were brilliant. And I think Ronaldo had just joined United. And I was sitting there going, what am I doing here? What, like, seriously, what am I, how have I gotten to this situation where I'm sitting here being listened to, commenting on performance of players who are all better than me, who are at a level that I've never reached? And it kind of affected a little bit what I'd say, because it was kind of really bashful about, oh, you know, well, he's really good and... He'll be disappointed with that. Exactly. But if a defender was having a howl, I'd go, well, look at the quality of the fella he's up against. Then I'd pra- praise the forward and stuff like that. And, and rightfully, by the end of the season, Satanta dropped me. <laughs> so so uh, and after a while, then you realise, like, if, if I was to sit here like in, in, in a discussion now and, and we have difference of opinions, if I turn around and say, oh, well, you know. What level did you play? Exactly. Yeah. Then I, I think you're, you're, you're a... You're a phenomenal dickhead if you come out with a phrase like that. <laughs> As a person, if you're going to say, well, hang on, the merits of your argument have to be based solely on your ability to play a game, which maybe, depending on your age, you mightn't have played in five years, ten years, fifteen years. It doesn't matter. But I think it's wrong. I think when you're, when you're taking on board an opinion, I think it's always best to actually listen to the opinion rather than the ability of the person saying it in whatever skill you want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... I just, I thought that was so interesting because obviously one of the people who hasn't played at a level as high as Robbie Savage, who had like 12 or 13 seasons in the Premier League and several other seasons besides as a professional footballer, <laughs> you know, like he only played a lot for well, Wales. Was that Man United so at on. one point? Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, but M- uh, Mourinho. Exactly. Yeah, that's where I thought you were going with that. So so he he hasn't done anything. Uh, I mean, he as a as a player. Uh, and, I mean, what John Terry is saying there reminds me of what Sergio Ramos supposedly said to Mourinho. You know, when Mourinho come into the dressing room at halftime, and go, oh, what kind of marking was that at a corner? And Sergio Ramos kind of sarcastically saying, oh, are you going to show me how to mark at a corner now, little man? <laughs> how many corners did you mark at? Oh, you know all about marking at corners, wouldn't you, little fella? Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, that, was, that was obviously... But John Terry's attitude there is exactly the same. I was thinking, imagine Terry became the Chelsea manager, right? I mean, I've, I kind of have a dream that he one day does, maybe soon. And then imagine being... The little head of Chelsea's analytics team, right? Yeah, you're a you know an enthusiastic um, young sports executive, maybe mid to late thirties, maybe glasses, and uh, you go in to see John Terry with like some of the key data, and uh, you have to tell him you know the ideas that the analytics team has been coming up with, and uh, you know that John Terry's probably not really going to listen to a lot of what you've got to say. I mean, uh, judging by that, I, I I don't imagine he listens to pretty much anyone. 
But it's a way, get, I mean, he might have a personal thing with Robbie Savage. It's not hard to imagine that he possibly does. And he could just use a, this as an opportunity to take a pot shot at him. And like, it's a, it's a fairly standard response to criticism. You just try and discredit your critic. Yeah. Which is what he's trying to do here. So maybe that everything Robbie says after from now on, people would just go, actually, yeah, Terry doesn't care what this fella says. He didn't do what Terry did, so why are we listening to this fella? I'm more worried about the people who are taking Robbie Savage's opinion seriously in the first place, <laughs> to be honest with you. But the, the point, part, one thing that just slipped by there is that he said, as, you, as you're mentioning, when Rio says it or when Neville says it, when Cargo says it, I take it in, I try to improve that. I mean, I'd be pretty doubtful about that. I don't know, do the footballers, the level of John Terry sit there watching the analysis of games, see all the newfangled ways of doing that and think, well, actually, yeah, they're right. I was a little bit, you know, defending too deep there. I was. Do they actually, would John Terry listen to anybody bar his own manager? I I think think you can acknowledge that someone is telling the truth. Yeah. They they mightn't, I, I, I find it hard that a player would sit and watch a pundit and learn something new from that pundit. The pundit might just point out what's obvious to the player already or point out elements of his performance which he could improve. But the player should be aware of that to begin with. I think the criticism that hurts, I mean, obviously there's something about, I mean, John Terry probably just doesn't like being criticised. Who does? But the more hurtful criticism or or the kind of more painful criticism to listen to isn't necessarily criticism that comes from some legendary authority figure such as Rio Ferdinand, but criticism which... Sounds, yeah, they've probably got a point there, you know what I mean? Which you can kind of tell there is the there is at least a grain of truth in what's in this negative thing that's being said about you. As, as about, I mean, if Rio Ferdinand or, or Gary Neville was to say something about you which you thought was completely baseless and stupid, I don't think it, I don't think it would hurt much. It might be annoying. You might be like, why is he saying this stupid thing? But it wouldn't be it wouldn't like uh, cut you to the quick so much as if Robbie Savage came out with a devastating analysis of, <laughs> of your failures, which you which chimed at your own inner secret fears. You know, where we were talking about the fans earlier, Ken. Uh, one thing we didn't get to, which is wrap up by talking about the element, maybe the I don't know if nasty element is the right way of talking about this. But moronic element. Moronic element that will follow Mourinho to the hilt, uh, the the more moronic section of Chelsea fans, maybe follow some of his behaviour? Well, I mean, it's, this was um, this was a little video that was doing around. I mean, it's just like Chelsea fans channel, um, which is essentially just a YouTube channel, which provides videos for Chelsea fans. You know, mostly fairly kind of what you would expect from the Chelsea fans channel. Uh, and this one is... Uh, <laughs> Carnero causing chaos, the Daily Chelsea. So you got the two Chelsea fans there standing, um, looking at the camera. One of them has a poppy. I don't know where the other guy's poppy is. He's a disgrace. <sighs> the guy's a disgrace. And they're talking about Ava Carnero. And they're essentially, um, let's say, not too happy with the fact that she's vindictively taking a case against Jose Mourinho. Not just the club, but she's taking it up at Mourinho as well, which suggests she's got a little bit of venom in her. A little bit. Of, she's been a bit of a spiteful so and so, and so on and so forth. So you got these two, you know, idiots prattling on about how this is awful, and can't can't Ava Carnero see that Chelsea are going through a, a bad time at the moment? And really, where does she get off? She's getting a nice little payoff from the club. She's got another offer from another club. You know, what's the problem? Right? What's the problem with being drummed out of your job publicly by? Mourinho, you know, what is the problem with being humiliated before the country? What is the problem with, you know, a situation which leads to tabloid newspapers doing stories on your sex life? You know what I mean? But this is an example of 
what happens. I think when Mourinho does these things, you've got these people who can't think, who, who don't understand anything, who will just blindly follow him. I mean, it's like 10 years ago in Anders Frisk, when you know he had a go at Anders Frisk, a lot of Chelsea fans then sent death threats to Anders Frisk, mm. you know, uh, and effectively hounded him out of the game. Not because they're particularly evil people, just because they're idiots. And when Jose Mourinho acts badly, this is the consequence. You know, there's this whole army of morons who are going to just, you know, what is this woman's problem? Like, why can't she just move know, on? It's, yeah, it's just amazing. <laughs> it just, Jose Mourinho is the injured party in their eyes. Richie, what do you think about the army of morons? Well, I only got to, I think that clip is about five, six, six minutes. minutes. Yeah. I only got to about the second minute and I'd had Keep enough. Up. Which is more than enough, more more than I should have listened to them. Yeah, absolute morons. Yeah. But it's it's not new. It's just social media means we're, we we we've got access to these people and we get to hear them. <laughs> whereas before we could just leave the pub and leave them sitting in the corner chatting to themselves. Richie, we'll leave it at that. Thanks so much. Good luck, lads. See if you don't this out with Motherwell, you're a wee me. Your bags in your desk, boom. Your bags in your desk, boom. I mean, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big teddy boots here in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on the technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no peep, I take no peep, I take no, I take no, I take no peep. Just so soft, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me. I can't yell me, I can't yell me. I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight. You don't deserve the fans. What's it, your fans? Just need your fucking work, wouldn't it? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get out, get out! biggest fool in Manchester. Um, just to be clear there, lads, Richie didn't actually just call me no, a phenomenal dickhead, you, did he? He called you a phenomenal dickhead. I think that's what he said. Yeah. Well, that was definitely the phrase that he used. And I'm, he was looking at <laughs> all. He looked him square in the eye and he said, you would be a phenomenal dickhead. Oh, wait a second. There's, there's a little note here. He's left. Just have a look at this. Oh, yeah. Phenomenal dickhead arrow pointing at me. Oh, right. Well, that clears it Signed, up. Signed, or it? Sadler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's not attaching too much importance to the Chelsea support in terms of Mourinho keeping his job there, Ken. Um, Zero importance. Well, actually. ultimately, is Chelsea a democracy, Owen? I would have thought maybe not. No. Unfortunately, uh, from the point of view of Jose Mourinho, if only Chelsea was a democracy. But unfortunately, Chelsea is a despotism. And there is a single, a single ruler. And it's not Jose Mourinho. It's Roman Abramovich. So... It all depends, really. I mean, I, I think Ronan Bramish might even get a kick out of really annoying those Chelsea fans from time to time. I mean, he imposed Rafael Benitez on them. <laughs> that was just weird. <laughs> I mean, you know, it worked out pretty well. That was spiteful. That was. That <laughs> they, was... At the end of the day, they won the Europa League. I mean, and Mourinho says, oh, they, you know, it sh it's not good. It's not healthy for a club like Chelsea to win a competition like the Europa League. That was pretty, That's what Mourinho tried to say about it. But, you know, it's still one more European trophy than he's managed to win with Chelsea to date. Yeah. Liverpool's chief executive Ian Eyre was one of the speakers at the Web Summit in Dublin this week. Let's hear his chat with Ken Erty. One of the interesting things that's happened in the last few years uh, is the ease of being able to watch football without having to pay for it. So uh, we can all kind of, we all know that a goal is scored six seconds later, you can watch it on Twitter. You've got a window until it's taken down. Uh, every fan, pretty much of every team around the world, knows how to find a stream that's going to show their club if they want to see it. So is that something, I mean, I mean what's your feelings on that? Is that going to be a problem um, for, for television or is it something, is it also an opportunity for the clubs in terms of if people want to watch it on the internet, maybe the clubs can sell it to them that way? 
Well, I think the, you know, the league, certainly, you know, again, I can only speak for the Premier League and for Liverpool. We take it very seriously, and there's a lot of work, a lot of, a lot of effort that goes into curb piracy. But, but I think at the same time, you know, I, I spent many years myself living in Asia, and there's an awful lot of copied products, you know, pirate products, shirts, uh, that type of thing. The one thing I found when you're in Asia is that the, the person who, who buys the copied product will never buy the real product. So mm. they're not really the same customer. And I think, you know, as, you, as we just said, the, the amount of people that subscribe to pay TV globally uh, or, you know, sub- subscriptions on the internet to watch football isn't waning. It isn't churning at a rate that is concerning anyone about the odd goal or the odd piece of content appearing. Mm. I think it's something that we'll always chase down. But, but I think people want to watch the 90 minutes. They want to watch the excitement of the whole game. And, you know, they're the core of the fan bases of all of the clubs across the world. Yeah. And that's the product that sucks everybody in. Well, it is, I mean, this global exposure means that suddenly the club is a much more valuable sponsorship uh, property. And, th- and this is what you were doing when you joined Liverpool initially. Uh, you were saying that when you joined Liverpool, they had two sponsors, and now it's, I think, 34? Yeah. Um, and I was looking at it, not, e- not even all these sponsors are, are listed on Liverpool's website, but it's, a, it's impressive the kind of global reach of those. I think the biggest uh, country uh, from which these sponsors are originating is the United States. Uh, there's quite a few from East Asia, some from the UK, some from the rest of Europe. But what, why is it so appealing to these um, to these brands which previously would have had nothing to do with English football. When you were out there selling Liverpool to firms in you know, Indonesia or the United States, what was, what was the thing that you were selling? Well, what you're selling is the reach and the appeal of this product. You know? And I think you, with any sponsor over, over that eight years, we've always looked, A, to find a sponsor that, that can use Liverpool's brand and use the reach of Liverpool and its, its huge supporter base, but also somebody that can bring something back to the club. So you used Indonesia as an example. In the case of Garuda, the national airline of Indonesia, you know, we have a huge fan base across Indonesia, but at the same time that they entered into um, a sponsorship deal with us as a partner, they were just starting their flights into Europe. Mm. So you can see you know, that it works both ways. You can see that, you know, you, we mentioned the Chelsea game, we'll have been on the back page of every newspaper in the world on on Sunday, we'll have been in you know most websites that relate to sport all mm. over the world, and you know the pictures that people put across of players in training kit, and and there you'll see Garuda front and centre. You'll see Jurgen Klopp interviewed post game, you know at our home games, and you'll see Garuda front and centre. So it's about that. It's about giving exposure to their brand, but there's more to it. You know we we use Garuda a lot as one example to work with us on our business and the exposure of our business and advice on other things we do commercially across the Indonesian market and Indonesia is a huge huge market for us and I think something like our second or third most followed country on Facebook is Indonesia so Mm. we're more fans there probably following us in Indonesia than we do in the UK because of the size of population. That's an interesting kind of uh, point uh, because uh, I mean, when, I, when you think of Liverpool, you think of uh, the, you know, the, what's the identity of Liverpool it has to do with the kind of connection between the team and the fans, you know, the cop, the flags, you know, all the managers going back to Shankly that you see on the flags. Does it become difficult to, 
you know, to prevent that, the core identity of Liverpool from being diluted by the fact that it's not just a club for half of a city in England and, you know, Norway and Ireland and whatever. It's actually got more fans in Indonesia uh, than, in, than in the UK. Do you, do you, is there a kind of a tension there between kind of preserving what the club really is and trying to make as much money as you can? No, I don't, that, I don't think that's the tension. You know, the, the role, in my role and the people that work with me at Liverpool is, is to protect that identity, okay? So we've got to create, you know, the, the reason that people in Indonesia, as an example, support Liverpool is because of what it represents. So you can't, you don't want to change that. It's the core, it's the sort of heart of, you know, and the, and the, and the, the, the history of the football club all sits there in Liverpool at Anfield, in the business, uh, in the stadium and around it. What, what we try to do is we try to create as real an experience for a fan anywhere else in the world as the fan who live in, you know, I grew up in, in Liverpool, supporting Liverpool, and in Liverpool you get it 24-7. It's in the newspaper, you can go to the store, you can go to the stadium, you can see the players around the city, the whole thing is there. But if you live in, in Hong Kong or the US or anywhere else, you know, it's slightly different. So what we're trying to do with digital media, with retail, with a, is not just trying to take money off people, but give them access to all of that stuff that they want. But, but it is vital that we retain as much of that, you know, yeah. historic heritage and identity of Liverpool uh, as possible. But at the same time, we have to move with the development of football. And that, yeah. you know, uh, I have to say, when I joined eight years ago, that was Liverpool's biggest failing, in my opinion. Yeah. We were too far behind some of our competitors commercially. And actually, that damages you when you need to spend and invest you know, in the transfer market. One of the ways it strikes me that um, Liverpool could hang on to the thing, that's, you know, the thing that people like about the club or the things that a lot of fans identify with uh, has to do with the access of the local community to the, to the games. So when you look at all of the Premier League clubs at the moment, and Liverpool is no exception, Gate receipts are going down as a proportion of overall revenue. You know, as the TV money increases, as the sponsorship money increases, people aren't relying so much on gate receipts. So I think in the case of Liverpool, it's about 20% gate receipts at the moment, 40-40. Uh, and you're increasing the size of your stadium. Does that mean you can bring down the price of tickets? Because a lot of what makes English football, and Liverpool in particular, special is the side of a stand which is full of, you know, uh, not necessarily just rich people, but, you know, people from the local community who are passionately supporting the team. Well, I think the most important thing for us is to keep the balance there. You know, we talked about the great success we've had in the sale of media rights, but who knows how long that will continue. What's important is have the right balance. Just like any business, you've got to have diversity in where your revenue comes from, so you're cushioned against downturn. So we're, our expansion, will, will, right now it's about 20%. With the, with the increased capacity next year, uh, our, our match day revenue will go to about 30%. Um, I think what's important, as you say, is to have one eye on that and one eye on the people that are in the stadium. You know, around about, um, around about 30, 40, 50%, 30% uh, of season ticket holders, uh, I think, um, I think 30, 35% are Liverpool postcode you know, 60% Merseyside postcode. So, we, you know, we're still getting the heartbeat of Liverpool in the stadium. Mm. Um, but it is also important when you've got such a diverse and rich and long-reaching fan base that you can't, you can't deny access to those people. We want to be inclusive to everyone. So it's about getting the balance right. And, you know, we don't 
treat any fan differently. Uh, we treat everybody the same, and we want to give as many people the opportunity as we can to come and watch the team. This uh, new phenomenon of, of social media obviously allows you to connect with people all over the world and to market uh, the club and the sponsors to them. It also means they can shout back at you about what, the, what they think is going on at the club. I mean, for instance, every time John Henry, I think, looks at Twitter, he's got like 600 people telling him to sign Royce. Um, why, don't, why don't you sign Royce? <laughs> seems, seems like a good idea. If we did everything that people said on social media, I don't, I don't think we'd get any work done. But, but does it make it more difficult, though, to, to run a club with an eye to the long term because of the fact that you're aware of this, you know, millions of people out there who might be angry at a particular thing or maybe don't like the manager anymore or, you know, that, that it creates a whole new dimension of pressure on the people who are running the club? Uh, I don't think it does create a whole new dimension you can, of pressure. You can ignore that. It's not about ignoring it. I think you, you always want to listen to your customers, right? So I, I think it's about, it's about using it as a barometer, right? You know, you, it's a good tool to have a sense of what the, the feeling is out there, but it's also important to take it in context. You know, we, we've got very different and diverse people who support the club. People who come to the games are often slightly different in their opinions of people who watch on TV and people who are further afield have a slightly different view sometimes. But when there's a consistent and common message of either good or bad, then that stands out and that's a good indicator. Just like any business, people do research in every business and we have people who just look at, you know, what the messages are, what the... Really? What the fever, yeah, of course. Yeah, when we, you know, we're... That's what you do, right? When you run any business, you want to listen to your customers. And we, that doesn't mean we, you know, we go out and sign a player because, of, because, it, because it doesn't happen like that. What you'll find is there'll be a whole separation of different fans thinking sign different players. That, that's slightly different. But, but if it's talking about you know, what we do on a particular game or what we do on a, with the manager, or what, that, of course, we, you know, we look at that to get a sense of... Mm of what's going on within our customer base. Well, when you're talking about signing players, that's another area which has been hugely affected by technology in the last few years. So you can track t uh, you know, tens of thousands of players, you can keep very detailed statistics on them, and it's kind of, it's transformed that area a lot. I mean, Liverpool is one of the clubs where this has happened very openly. Uh, there's a transfer committee there. It's not just one person who's making the decision. You're on that committee. How did it, uh, how did it come about? Uh, why did you decide that was the way to go? Because I, I think, there was talk, for instance, that Louis van Gaal uh, would be coming in as a director of football and you decided not to go down that road. No, uh, that wasn't the case. But in terms of, I mean, look, the word transfer committee, I think, got used once and, and became this idea that we all sit around a table and have a vote on every player we sign. And it couldn't be further from the truth. And, you know, there's only one person as the final say on players at Liverpool Football Club. And right now that's Jurgen Klopp and... That's always been the case, certainly uh, all the time I've because, been. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's always been the manager who has the final say. Because it seems as though uh, it seemed with the previous manager that some of, some of the players, maybe he was less keen on than others. Yeah, but Brendan had the final say on all the players we signed. Well, the, the, the point that has been made about committee is really just, and again, I don't think we do anything any different to most or all football clubs, which is, you know, the manager will say, I want to look for somebody in this position. We have a bunch of people, and that's a mix of traditional scouting that everybody's aware of, and more recently, more analytical and, 
and, um, and digital-based information, and we bring all of that together, it, as you would imagine, and as was always the case even in the past, just in traditional scouting terms. And we'll look at the two, three, four, whatever it is, best players for that mm. position. We'll show them to the manager. The manager will either go watch or have the scouts go watch those players. We'll narrow it down. And then at that point, I'll become more involved and start talking to clubs, agents, players on the negotiation basis of the deal. And then the manager will choose. And that's yeah. never changed. I, you know, I've been at Liverpool eight years and that's pretty much always been so it's, it's it. More But, like but the committee is, is, if there is a committee, we don't think of it as a committee, yeah. just the media do. But, but the yeah. committee is real, the collaboration of all of those people that all contribute to letting the manager make that decision. And I think actually that's very smart. There was a discussion on, uh, um, on BT Sport, actually, uh, just before the Liverpool-Chelsea game. It was Fletch, Stav, Rio Ferdinand, Owen Hargreaves and Ray Wilkins. Uh, and the three former players, well, Savage is also a former player, I forgot there. Wilkins, Ferdinand and Hargreaves were all convinced that this is, this is the reason they're not managers. Uh, you get like um, sporting directors, transfer committees picking players and the manager becomes a powerless figure and the job suddenly becomes more grief than it's worth. Do you, do you, do you agree that it's, it's keeping talented men like Rio Ferdinand out of, out of management? I don't think that at all. I think that any, any manager in, in any major league around the world today, you know, you look at, look at the last three months or, you know, at Liverpool, we've had a game every three days. When's the manager going to go fly around the world watching players that he thinks he might sign? When's the manager going to go, going to go and negotiate with an eight. So the job Never. is basically, it's too complicated for one person to do now. Yeah, of course. And, and that, but that's not the same as making the decision. Mm. The, process, the, the point is you're using smart process and technique and people, all of whom, you know, our scouts, our analysts, they're all, they've all worked in all manner of different football clubs. They have great experience in the game. And they're there to provide the manager with the best tools to make the best decision. I think if I was any of those people on the show that you mentioned and you were going to be a manager, you'd, you'd need that. Not just want mm. it, you'd need it. I can see we're nearly out of time here, and so I just want to ask you, something you mentioned earlier was financial fair play. Uh, it seems to me that was an important thing for Liverpool's owners when they took over the club. They thought, big fan base, you um, for bringing in these rules, we can make a lot of money and compete on that basis. Seems like UEFA have, have abandoned the rules. What do Liverpool think about that? Well, they haven't abandoned it. I think there's been some changes, some of which... Are letting Manchester City, you know, buy Raheem Sterling, buy Kevin De Bruyne? I mean, you know. Yeah, but you won't. I guess you won't see the the implications of that until this year's, um, you know, uh, review of their situation because it's it works. Is, is quite, it, a, is it works annoying quite, from Liverpool's point of view to see this happening? No, I think. Listen, I, I think that's for UEFA to to decide, isn't it? We, well, you have, you you must have your own opinion on uh, it. We, we have an opinion, and my opinion would be that you know, FFP is there. You know, to manage that type of uh, of activity, and I think UEFA has a responsibility um, to make sure that, that you know that's pulled into place. Some of the rules uh, we've seen starting to have a positive effect. Some of the rules have started, uh, as I said earlier, and you mentioned to, to have see clubs in a profitable, sustainable way, and that's the ultimate aim of it. And you know, as this thing grows and as they get better, I think it was a bit overcomplicated initially. Um, some of the UEFA meetings I was in, it was very clear that they're now trying to find ways to administrate it quickly, more quickly and more effectively. So 
let's hope that that has an effect such that everybody's on a level playing field. Okay, well, uh, we're out of time, I can see. Um, you're off to Kazan tomorrow. Uh, so best of luck with that. And thanks for joining us at the summit today. Thanks, Ken. All right, hope you enjoyed Ken Erdy speaking with Ian Eyre there. Uh, hobnobbing with the chief executive of Liverpool. I should reiterate, we had to we had to actually give you the audio from the thing that actually happened at the web summit, as opposed to what we thought we were getting when we originally when the web summit originally spoke to us uh, mm-hmm. about that, which was to do uh, an interview with Ian Air. Well, you thought you were going going on to a one on one interview. Well, that's it, what I thought because if you remember, we did an interview with Dave, uh, Damien Camoli last year at the web summit, and that wasn't the on stage thing. Camoli was talking on stage and so on. But we then afterwards, or I, I say, keep saying we when I mean the royal me, we. Mm-hmm. yeah, me. Yeah. I uh, spoke to Kamali, and so that's what I thought it was. And it only kind of became apparent at quite a late stage that actually, when they talked to an interview, they meant this. I said, "Oh, right, okay, okay, we can still do that, but obviously we'll do the you know separate interview, you know, for the podcast, fine." But then it turned out Ian Air was just legging it; he wasn't going to do any of that. So it would have seemed like a bit of a waste not to. Uh, not to use it, but there you go. And look, Owen, maybe maybe there will be those podcast listeners out there right now who are thinking, well, no, actually, that was a waste. The, sitting through that was a waste. <laughs> Why would they think that? I've never heard such a soft soap. Could you you know, have, have soaped Ian Air up a little bit more? Would listen, he have been listen, just completely covered take, in soap? If you take the fire out of Ken as a journalist, you're not getting the same journalist. <laughs> well, what would your if answer you ask be? Me, if you ask me, this is, this is a case in point, right? Ken's going to pick up a few yellow cards here and there, right? As a journalist. And you have to just accept that. Because otherwise, what you get is, is, is that interview. A defanged Ken Early. Well, why did you go soft? Why did you take the fangs out? Well, look, there is... A, I mean, I suppose it's the... It's the sort of... The setting is Ian Eyre has, you know, has come over as the representative of Liverpool to this uh, tech organisation. Summit, uh, whatever. He's not... He doesn't want to necessarily... They, the Liverpool Communications Department did stipulate they didn't want to talk about football. You know, it was kind of a, it was to be focused very much on the on the technology and air side of things. You know, as opposed to the the, the team. You know, or Klopp. sacking Brendan Rodgers. What's really what's Jurgen Klopp really like? You know, what's been going on with Klopp? Um, and I mean, I spoke to Ian Air a little bit before we went on stage and and talked to him about the Chelsea game and you know what what that was like and Karen Brady's call him and. To see if maybe he might start dishing out a little bit of insider skin. No, let's just say no. I mean, the whole setting wasn't necessarily conducive to getting Ian Eyre's hidden truth. I mean, maybe if, maybe someday, by some bizarre set of circumstances, you end up on a ship which is which is which is kidnapped by Somali pirates, mm-hmm. and you and Ian Eyre are both there locked in the in the canteen. You know, they've turned off the lights and everything. <laughs> it's just you and Ian Eyre huddling. They're uh, in this in the mess, you know, li- listening to this. Oh, was that gunfire? You know, uh, you know. They're both to... wearing vests. I've never seen McDevitt wear a vest before. But that's what he's wearing on this Somali pirate. D- dirty, dirty vest, right? You're sitting there next to Ener. Both of you are really scared, worrying about what's going to happen with the Somali pirates. That, Owen, is a situation in which I can imagine you getting down to some real talk. You know what I mean? At some point in that situation, Ian Air might end up telling you what he really thought of Brendan Rodgers. What really happened in those transfer committee meetings? You know, everyone couldn't have been happy. Listen, well, we're not getting out of here alive anyway. You well, know, come fr- on, spill the well frankly, frankly, Rogers wasn't happy at all. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I can imagine him maybe saying, you know, there are times when I, 
when as as I see in another sponsorship deal, you know, and walk out past, is it? Do they still have the McDonald's in the cop? It, it predated Ian Eyre if, if it's still there. Maybe that maybe it's still there. And they think to themselves. I think to myself, is this really still the club of Shanks? <laughs> you know, well, how he might get. But look, if you're, you're on a stage, you've got a strict twenty-minute time limit. It's a it's a technical <laughs> a technological conference, uh, and largely he's there to talk about how many Twitter followers Liverpool have. Maybe you're not going to necessarily get get right down to the truth. It's okay, Ken. You've built up enough support, enough trust with our listeners that. So long as, the, when you do ultimately end up on a Somali pirate ship with the Air in the future, just bring along a recording device so we can record yeah. that chat. Yeah. And then hear it. You, can, you know, just I'll just, back. I mean, as, even on your iPhone, as he tearfully begins to confide in what really happened, you know, over the whole, the Markovic signing, yeah. I'll just <laughs> reach into my pocket. And That's not odd, is it? Click uh, on voice no, memos. No, no. It doesn't matter if it is, you know, we're not getting it. It's a message in a bottle, Airsy. <laughs> you know, ultimately... It's just a message in a bottle. We've know? got another podcast out today featuring... What did it feature? Oh, yeah. Just the greatest scandal in the history of athletics, which is unfolding at the moment. And we're going to talk a little bit about the impact that's going to have on the current president, Lord Sebastian Coe. Mm-hmm. See exactly how much he might know about this and the way he's approached it ever since the... Particularly the Sunday Times and ARD, the combined story came out a number of months ago about the various... Um, tests that weren't being uh, treated quite as vigorously as they should have been. So anyway, we'll see. He's, he kind of came out on the very much on the front foot at the time, which is maybe what he felt was the right thing to do, but might be backfiring somewhat now. You can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains, also facebook.com forward slash Second Captains. Thanks again. Thank you, Al. Thanks very much, Kieran. Thanks, Kenny. And Thanks, Kieran. Thanks for your time. Take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.